0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you saying opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR.
1: You're listening to Opera Box Score.
0: Welcome to Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out, like we do. What's more, on our show, you get to have your say live on the air. Call us on 847-866-WNUR. That's 847-866-9687. Or if you're shy, you can leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Tonight, my co-host Oliver Camacho and I talk with Matt Barresi, an opera librettist, comedy writer, and professor based in Chicago. We drag him into the conversation about Royce Vavrek, a librettist who is currently Flavor of the Month, and we grail Matt about his opinions on whether or not opera companies should produce musicals. Let's do this. We are live. No edits. No filters. Kickoff is next. Keep it locked right here, right now, on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, and Opera Box Score. And here we are on Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, how's it going?
2: Great. Happy uh, African-American history, Black History Month. It's just started. Yeah, and happy Iowa caucuses, everybody.
0: Yes, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm obsessed by talk. the election, okay. but I'm totally ignoring the results until, like, I get home from the show, because there's really nothing to say, I don't think, at this point. Oh, right? we
2: can't live-tweet it right now or, like, cover it as it's happening? Okay. Our, our own like uh, embedded reporter, you know, that's where Giovanna is, right? She's in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. Giovanna isn't <laughs> at
0: the show tonight. She's at an, an event raising money for an opera company. Uh, so she said, maybe she's just throwing up again. <laughs> <laughs> we are excited to have Matt Beresie in the house tonight. As I said, he's an opera librettist, comedy writer, and professor. He's created new musicals, choral works, and art songs performed across Coral the country. Works? Last year, he and his longtime collaborator, composer Peter Hilliard, premiered Be- Blue Viola at urban areas in Washington DC. He's a dad to a 4-year-old and he's the sometime co-host of the Paternity Test comedy podcast along with his former college roommates. That sounds like quite a crew, Matt.
2: Is it sometimes or always? It is always. Okay. Yeah, he is he is the Paternity Test. He's the he puts the pa in paternity. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that. Can we use that? Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yes, yes, you can steal that, of course. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, I'm a man. fan of the
2: show, so it's great to join and you. And you've got a great voice for radio. Well,
0: thank you. You're, uh, you're supposed to say you have a great face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you have a very swarthy headshot, Matt. Can oh, I just, thank can you. I just say I'm, that? I'm trying to leverage this. Now, George, now,
3: George, now, Mary. Step uh, off. I'm, I'm a, uh, going to be a visiting contributor for to Windy City Live now, doing. Shut up, really? And comedy. So, uh, wow. if you see me with hair plugs next time you see me on or, uh, Channel 32 or whatever, on WFLD,
2: that's why. It's on uh, ABC, ABC 7, Chicago's ABC 7. That's that when is... where they sit at a desk and they talk kind of at each other, but they're Yeah, it's like morning looking. banter, like cheerful yeah. morning banter. And no, they're really well-groomed, they're like really well-groomed. Yeah, they're pretty slick, they're pretty yeah. slick.
0: The, yeah. um, isn't the lighting you on TV like super harsh, you know, when you're on set? Yeah.
2: To so wear a lot of makeup. It, a lot of makeup, yeah. 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 It's a lot of makeup, But yeah. you know exactly. how to do makeup, that's kind of your specialty, right?
3: Well, and it's great to, uh, I, I do teach some makeup classes sometimes, but uh, I get to have it done on me, which is nice. it does take a few years off it makes you say i should wear wear makeup all
0: the time well apart from bringing you on the show to talk about your tv career (laughs) this is just a springboard really thanks for having me (laughs) but actually as i as i did in the intro i mean there's a couple things that you that you work on to make your bread and butter I, Mm -hmm. i don't know really where to start i guess you don't get paid to be a dad I don't
3: get
1: paid to do much. Uh,
2: (laughs) I think Matt Brazy is sort of like me where we just do all these things that we kind of just do for free and we give away because isn't that one of like the lessons of the Dalai Lama or something like that? Like (laughs) figure out what you love and like, do it a lot and give it away. I feel or, that with both both the, the academic like world
3: that. and writing operas, and we'll talk about this more as the hour goes on, but uh, the story is find something you love that you think is a vocation and then go into that <laughs> field and find out it's not a field. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, oh, my goodness. It's a story of my life. It really <laughs> is. Uh, but, how, I mean, seriously, how, how did you start writing libretti?
3: Oh, let's see. How do I keep that short? I mean, I think everybody starts with musical theater in modern American, right? You Like you do your school musicals, and then you find uh, older, bigger musicals, and they're called operas. And and you, you know, because there's a higher bar for entry with operas. So I feel like you don't just jump into that when you're born, at least right. not in this day and age. So I think in undergrad, I started to take opera workshops and uh, and then start to... Go see operas. I, I think I'd always watched operas on PBS on Channel Eleven. Right, uh, they'd show the back in the day. When, show yeah. I even watched just to see if I could do it when they showed the Levine Ring Cycle. Oh, I decided like as a wee
2: lad. Did that you I see, would see that Peter Sellers it. Don Giovanni when it first was broadcast? Yes, I mean, yeah. that was one of the first things I saw. And, like I saw two guys in their underwear. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is changing my whole outlook yeah. on everything. Uh, so then by by the end
3: of. Uh, undergrad, I was writing musicals, but starting to become more passionate about operas. Between uh, undergrad and grad school, Mm -hmm. I got even more passionate about opera. So when I went to uh, the graduate musical theater writing program at NYU, uh, I already decided that I wanted to write opera. So I I had to uh, really work to customize that degree Mm. uh, to write opera. Uh, And I met my primary composing partner, uh, Peter Hilliard, there. I I thought you were
0: going to say I met the love of my life in a Aww. way in a manner of speaking okay well that's
3: good. Uh, <laughs> uh but he had come from peabody and san francisco conservatory and also wanted to compose opera so we kind of made that love connection and started and used that program to write opera that's what i'm talking about uh, and then
2: and and <laughs> it's like that don giovanni <laughs>
3: <laughs> and luckily at the time i was dating a girl who worked at the met so i got sort of unlimited free met tickets nice, yeah so i supplemented my education by going to the met to like untitled standing room four nights a week and that really helped me focus that you know focus that career and and get kind of learn all the operas in a you
0: know, five or six or seven year period, and that was still under the Volpe regime. Probably? That was the Volpe regime. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it, exactly. Yes. It was. So it was the same sort of dusty old sets, and you were seeing kind of standard rap done in a standard. The way. The big
3: Zeffirelli, you know, mm-hmm. Where's Waldo productions of, of all the shows, which which I have a fondness for because that's how yeah. I.
2: You how can I usually that. find the tenor because they're the girthiest. That's right.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were back in those days. Those tenors were pretty girthy. <laughs> what do you
2: mean back in those
0: days? <laughs> Dude, what are you talking about? We just we just saw uh, Pearl Fishers with uh, Mariusz Kic. Yeah. And and, mm. and I mean, he's, yeah, and he's pretty, no, he's but pretty I mean, I'm jacked. talking about
2: like the singers, the singers that sing Wagner and like call off and stuff like that. You can't get around mm. that. Yeah,
0: now. yeah. Johann Bota, that guy is, yeah,
2: he, is a, he is a wall yeah. of a man. He yeah. puts the boat in Bota. Mm-hmm.
0: He, he really does. So, when did you end up in Chicago then, Matt?
3: Uh, I am from Chicago, or Chicago Land. I'm from, from the south suburbs, mm-hmm. and over the summer I met my wife, who is a voice professor here at Northwestern University, uh, and we fell in love and decided to get married, and it Aww. seemed like me as a bum opera librettist, it would be easier for me to move back to Chicago, which I intended to do eventually anyway, yeah. uh, rather than her leave her, her professorship, so I moved here several years ago, and and now I'm here in this room and with you're you.
2: you're on that milk train, that Northwestern milk train. Is that what they call it, gravy train? Gravy train. Gravy yeah. Train. What's a milk train?
3: I don't uh, know. I did get a chance to teach her briefly, and that was that was a, a hoot as well. What? Mm-hmm. what were you some, teaching? some musical
0: theater performance seminars. Was that under the Dominic Massimi regime?
3: Was Dominic still around? It was right around the end of Dominic, beginning of David David Bell. But I do know Dominic. Yeah. Oh, I do have. Speaking of Franco Zeffirelli, the 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 renowned director of of traditional Italian rep, there was uh, my undergraduate, my my internship right after undergrad, mm-hmm. uh, I got an administrative internship at the Kennedy Center, and when I was there, Wash Op, which operates, performs their operas in the same building, uh, had put out a memo to the staff, and they said, we're looking for supers. For Zeffirelli's production of Leoncavallo's *Pagliacci*, starring awesome. Domingo, we need some. <laughs> and they said if you look Italian, we need some dagos, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So said if you look like an Italian villager, come down yeah. and stand in a line, and we'll yeah. tell you if we have a costume that fits get,
2: you. Get some hair oil, and I and I did, <laughs> and so
3: I got cast in the show, and I would just hang backstage and and talk to girls with Domingo all all yeah. night for weeks, yeah. and I thought I really need to up my opera game if I'm going to be in this show. Yeah. So that actually really sucked me into opera. All, all the things I wanted to learn just so I could hang with those people at, yeah. at Wash Up. Nice, Aliachi. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So, I mean, what is what is it? What's the, a day in the life look like
2: for well, before, you? Well, I mean, mm. here's a, I know. I, I you can answer that question, but mm. as long as we're here, uh, talking to you, uh, you also are like a, a presence in the Chicago area with your parenting stuff. Like, you are like, like Chicago's most famous dad now. You're like more famous than Cliff Huxtable. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Italian Cliff Huxtable. Too soon. Uh, without the, without the roofies. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I, uh,
3: yeah I'm yeah i spread way too thin. And I think that anybody in the arts understands the hustle of the arts. Uh, and so I thought, well, my day job, I'll be a professor. And then I'll have something steady. Exactly. Uh, that I can go, you know, a place I can go to every day. Yeah. But of course, I'm I'm an adjunct. They call it adjunct hell. I feel like it's a little bit uh, uh, dramatic to, to put it that way. But I'm an adjunct and I teach at Carthage College in Kenosha and I teach at North Central College in Naperville, both of which are over an hour away and I live right here in the city. Jeez. So on any given day, I'm either driving way far to Wisconsin to teach opera and direct the operas right. or out to Naperville to teach musicals and direct the musicals. Uh, so every day is a different mega commute. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then I have to—and then raising my four-year-old daughter and then trying to find time to write opera libretti, which is generally in the middle of the night. And I think people who are on the creative end of things know that, unfortunately, your best hours, your uh, your hours when you're fresh and energetic, are not when you're cre- doing the things you care about the, the very most. Exactly. And then at some point, my undergrad roommates and I said— Uh, Hey, we're all dying of fatherhood and lack of sleep, so let's start a podcast. Actually, we we listened to Oliver's other podcast, uh, uh, Opera Now, and we said, well, let's do a podcast like that about parenting. Not about parenting, not like useful information, but but (laughs) comedy. Um, And we started to do that. That turned into we were invited by Chicago Parent Magazine. Mm -hmm. I do a weekly blog at Chicago Parent and then a monthly column called Viva Daddy. My daughter's name is Viva in, okay. in Chicago Parent hard copy magazine and now in New York Parenting Magazines which is Manhattan Parent, Brooklyn Dang, Parent, man. Parent, so it's turned into a, this, this other, in, now it, my wife wants to murder me because I'll already bet. I have all these jobs driving around and then trying to write opera libretti and sometimes flying around to do operas and now I'm adding another long shot pie in the sky ridiculous career which is comedy oh, on boy. top of opera which is, that's like saying uh, well I'm a, I'm a, Theater major, but I've got English as a fallback, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've got you know two two ridiculous career paths, which is opera Poetry and comedy. Fall <laughs> um,
0: That is, yeah, that is that is the nightmare. Mm. Um, so, as I said in the intro, you've just done this show, um, Blue Viola, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a total success.
2: It's a it's a uh, homage to Viola Davis, right? Because you guys are really big Viola Davis fans. Huge well. Viola
0: Davis uh, <laughs> uh, fans. It's, it's, so, an homage it's a homage to the artist Bill Viola. Uh, I
2: think <laughs> okay. we uh, we it was a. It,
3: they premiered it, we developed it at Arena Stage in D.C. Uh, we, uh, it premiered at Urban Arias and uh, Tazwell Thompson, who just directed Lost in the Stars, and um, the Martin Luther King... Frederick Douglass piece by Philip Glass, uh, Appomattox, okay. at, at uh, Wash Washop. He directed it. Uh, and then we got to bring it and perform That's most of
0: it an opera at. For you folks. Yes, Washington Opera. Uh, we got to perform wash most up. of Wash I thought this was like the laundromat across from the Kennedy Center. Yeah, it's like,
3: like a coin op. <laughs> wash up. Uh, <laughs> coin operated opera. We figured it out. We stole opera. The automat of opera. You put in a coin, opera falls at the bottom. Uh, we got to perform most of the piece at. Uh, Wolf Trap at the Opera America, Mm -hmm. which is the service organization for opera companies. They have an annual convention and we perform some of the piece there uh, where it was uh, caught the interest of a lot of companies across the country. So uh, that should keep us in blue viola productions for the next several years. Um, And for those of people who don't know the life cycle of opera, operas are booked many years in advance, a shocking number of years in advance. So if you're a singing performing artist if you're a composer, if you're a librettist, people say, hey, we'd like to program your piece in five years, yeah. in seven years.
2: Yeah, uh, try to keep opera timely, you know, mm-hmm. when that's why Anna Nicole Smith like was like a, a success because like, she had just died. They lucked out, right? Yeah, and
3: more and more new yeah. work is they're trying to make it rip from the headlines. But how do you do yeah. something ripped from the headlines when you know it's not going to be performed for a decade?
2: Yeah. Well, that Nico Muley opera, Two Boys, and this st- mm-hmm. like about the Internet... Whatever you know, but they were still using like dot printers back then. Man. Right, like, right. The <laughs> dial-up. <like, laughs> yeah, like the, yeah. the AOL Opera. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Keyword murder. And and yeah, what's yeah.
0: what's next um, for yourself? I mean, Blue Viola is is has a life; it's continuing to go. And mm-hmm. and what's the next idea? How how's that well, happening? That's an excellent question. I, and I've got some
3: some pieces with other composers. Actually, this coming Friday, uh, I've written a, a chamber opera with the composer uh, Gregory Berg, and it's going to be. Uh, premiered at Carthage College in Kenosha mm-hmm. on, uh, next Are Friday. Are you directing it? Uh, I did. I did. Oh, wow. uh, actually, cool. we were directing. Uh, we had a. Here's the the
2: story. Does of that make sh- you a triple threat? Uh, like director, librettist, and makeup artist?
3: I don't know how much of a tr- of a threat I'm I am, dad. but I'm at least a, uh, at least three things. You're for just sure. a threat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were doing we were doing Soire Angelica Puccini's uh, opera that's less than an hour long, and it's all women. It's mm-hmm. about nuns, so it's all it's all women. Mm. Uh, because we didn't have any boys signed up for this january term opera well suddenly a million men signed up and because thought, they heard
2: it was all girls right <laughs> right
3: but there's no chamber billy bud there's no all men's yeah. short piece so we decided yeah. to write one for them so we're going to do that um i've got is a, it funny uh no it is not funny it's um, called uh, black september and it is about the 1972 munich olympics massacre oh my god so it's all set you know uh,
2: uh, hostage uh, operas about hostage situations are hot Ooh, there's right gonna now. be singlets in it right uh, wrestling singlets? wrestling singlets, sure, sure. I'm be there. You get all
3: your spandex needs uh, met. <laughs> so that's next week, and in March, I'm doing a piece out in Naperville. It's a, a steampunk rock operetta about. It's Love a it. setting of uh, Jules Verne. Uh, so that's a, a different flavor altogether. And and then Peter Hilliard and I, and that's with the composer uh, Jonathan Lynch, who's mm-hmm. a New York-based composer. And then Peter, who lives in Philadelphia, he and I are working on our pitches for various com- companies for for a new piece and. Uh, that's we're deep in discovery mode of uh, concepts to pitch to people because yeah. we never want to pitch one thing. You always want to pitch, um, as George says, I'm sure you know when you go to a company and you, you want to do something, it's so much better to have options for them. Right. Uh, so so I, want, I always want to have three pitches. and It's hard to have three really solid opera ideas because one of the big things with opera right now is people don't just say, is this a ripping yarn? Like, will this be a lovely show? The question is always, why is this important? Why must we do this opera now? How are you defining American opera and modern opera with everything you do? And it's an exhausting question.
2: Well, we only have like two minutes before we have to go to break. So I'm going to kind of take mm-hmm. all of these loose ends and tie them together. And maybe we'll end up talking about this uh, later on in the hour. But uh, one of the things that we talk about on Opera Now a lot is why, what happened to the comic operas. Mm. And you know, there was you know, an era when everybody was writing comic operas. And some of the most some of the most respected masterpieces in the canon, Marriage of Figaro has a big comedy component. And nowadays we have these operas that are just so serious, like Munich Olympics, you know, like nuns dying, you know. Like, w- w- how are you? What are you doing to address this problem in opera, Matt Barese?
3: Most of what Hilliard and I do is is comic in nature. And I have to tell you that I get a little exhausted when we premiere a comic work. Mm-hmm. People come up to us and say oh, it's so great that you're writing uh, comedy. You're bringing comedic opera back. That's so important. But we're not going to book your piece because it's just not weighty enough for our audience. It just doesn't seem substantial enough. So I feel like there's a hypocrisy there that every time I show off a piece with comedy, everyone praises it and then don't pick it up because they want something that's ripped from the headlines, super relevant, more grant-friendly. Yeah. So there's this idea that comic work, even though the audiences love it, isn't substantive enough to, f- to raise money. Is
2: or there to- a different like, mode you have to be in when you're looking at, you know, your words and, like, what is funny and, like, what is lyrical? And, like, can, lyrical, can funny be lyrical? I think
3: that's a valid problem.
2: I, if you look at the heyday of comic opera,
3: it's mm. when there were more notes. I mean, the funniest operas are yeah. by Rossini, who writes right. these, these crazy runs, or mm. Mozart, which isn't quite as crazy, but, crazy, but still up-tempo. So you yeah. can, because timing is everything. Yeah. So in a comedy, you want things to run at... Conversational speed.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Let, uh, we do need to take a short break here. Let's pause for a second. We're going to uh, listen to a couple public sewers announcements. When we come back, we've got the two minute drill coming up. Stick around on WNUR 89.3 FM, Opera Box Score. Don't forget to give us a call, 847 866 WNUR or 847 866 9687. On Twitter, we are at Opera Box Score. Stick around with us. Thank you so much.
1: You're listening to Opera Box Score. This just in. The Two-Minute Drill.
0: It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. The Castleton Festival, which conductor Lauren Mizell founded on his private estate in Virginia in 2009 and nurtured until his death in 2014, announced Wednesday that it will cancel its upcoming summer season and take a year-long hiatus. I have no finances anymore, said Linda Mazel the actress and widow of the conductor, who took over the festival after her husband's death and guided it through a 2015 season that she called huge. Stuart Copeland, the co-founder and drummer of The Police, has premiered his opera, The Cask of Amontillado* in New York City. The piece, based on the Edgar Allan Poe story of the same title, is a work Copeland wrote some years ago and has since written new orchestrations. The show comes to Chicago Opera Theatre next season. Tenor Jonas Kaufman has canceled his performances at the Metropolitan Opera in this season's new production of Puccini's Manon Lescaut due to illness. Star tenor Roberto Alagna, currently at the Met, giving a acclaimed performance of Canio, in Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci, will sing his first ever performances of the role of De Guia. Opera Philadelphia general director David Devan announced that baritone Jared Ott will replace Nathan Gunn for all five performances of the opera Cold Mountain. Mr. Gunn, who performed the role in last summer's world premiere at the Santa Fe Opera, was compelled to withdraw from the Philadelphia production due to a serious family illness. Police in Amsterdam responded to a domestic violence call Tuesday night after residents thought that they had heard someone screaming in pain. When officers arrived at the scene, they kicked a large hole in the door to let themselves in, only to find that the man inside simply was an opera singer practicing with his headphones on. And that's the two-minute drill.
1: Opera class. Sports radio class. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist. Oliver Camacho and Giovanna Jacques. Chalk talk on Opera Box Score.
0: Welcome back to the show, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We're streaming live at WNUR.org slash pop up. On Twitter, we are at Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho in the house with me tonight. Hello,
2: Oliver. Um, Castleton closing their season or, or put, putting a moratorium on their season is really sad. Yeah. That's very, very sad. It gave a lot of opportunities to young singers, especially from Northwestern somehow. And of course, I have a lot of close friends who did that festival. So there's something very sad about that. And Lauren Mazel died last year. So yeah. that's it's a bummer.
0: It it, it really is. Uh Matt Barresi also in the studio with us tonight as our guest co-host. Yes, yes. Fantastic. Uh a little uh errata there, of course. I said that um Puccini Oh my goodness! I said that Puccini wrote uh, Manon Lescaut, and of course it's not. It's
2: Massenet. Nope. It's Puccini. There's two. There's the Manon by Massenet. There's Manon Lescaut by Puccini. Now I'm just really confused. <laughs> yeah. and, and so nope. we're, gonna, we're same gonna... same subject. One in Italian. One in French. If
0: I I can only rewind about 50 seconds. <laughs> I would I would be a much more intelligent person. We're gonna move on. <laughs>
2: uh, actually, Oliver, you're
0: hosting this uh, second segment, our Chalk Talks segment. Take yeah, it away. Yeah.
2: Well, so. When I joined Opera Box Score, um, I just became, I you know tried to like look through uh, all the stories that I, that come through my feed as a opera podcaster, and this one story doesn't quite fit uh, with the weekly you know news events that we've been trying to cover. It seems like more of a perennial uh, story. It's a it's actually this librettist named Royce Fabric, who at the end of 2015 and the beginning of this year seems to be getting a lot of press like his publicist was doing a great job getting his name out there mainly because uh he was having a lot of his work uh produced at the uh, prototype festival which he talked about a couple of weeks ago so um you can find uh, a profile of royce vaverick on uh, opera now i mean opera news opera news magazine and then there was this big article that came out on a website called new musicbox.org and it's a conversation with royce Vavrick and you know Uh, Whoever interviewed him discovers that, you know, he also is a composer and maybe he was a singer. I'm not even sure. um, Plays piano and that he's now kind of settled down on writing libretti. And that's how he makes his living is writing libretti. And it just makes me think, you know, how many librettists do you know? Maybe, you know, but like the average person who knows about opera can probably name like three. Um, and that's that's like me. Lorenzo da Ponte, which we all know because he made a big deal out of his collaboration with Mozart and took a lot of credit, you know, for what he did with Mozart and then moved to America. And there's like, he's got like a famous like story of what type of scoundrel he was.
0: I mean, isn't that kind of incredible, actually, just to cut in, is that Lorenzo da Ponte was living in New York City, you know, in the late 1820s, early 1830s. And like, if you were around at that time, you could have met the man that worked with Mozart, no. in like in lower manhattan i just that blows my mind every time i read that and when he first came story. to this
3: country he was fleeing creditors and he opened a grocery store <laughs> in upstate New York. And uh, is it Clement Clark Moore? Who wrote The Night Before Christmas? Uh,
0: he, Clement Moore, yeah. He walked
3: um, into the grocery store, and he heard someone with an Italian accent. And so he walked over, and he said, I can't help but notice you have an Italian accent, and there's not Italians here. Who are you? And he said, oh, I'm Lorenzo De Ponte. I wrote with Mozart. And he said, what? And he invited him to become the first professor of Italian uh, letters at uh, what was then King's College, but now Columbia University. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so he that, was just hanging out, run, selling groceries. Like so that maybe
2: one could name like Stahl because he had those famous collaboration with Strauss, and then maybe like Arrigo Buito because he collaborated with Verdi and mm-hmm. other Italian composers, then eventually became a composer himself. But aside from those guys, like how many? I mean, I know you can name a bunch of librettists. Like I know that Britain worked with like really famous librettists too, like um, Mifani something or Piper, yeah. for
0: mm-hmm. a *Turn of the Screw*. W. Yeah. H. Auden. Auden, yeah. Um, for um.
2: But librettists, they, they yeah. just don't. You, they don't stay in the mindset, and so we have a librettist here today. Mm-hmm. What really are you doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, no well, it's, it's always remember you. been uh,
3: the librettist has always taken a backseat to the composer in the opera world, and that's uh, that's just how it is. It is it is. The libretto is there, I think, in many ways to facilitate. Musical st- storytelling to facilitate singing with a big voice to facilitate the composer. So the idea there's a density of words there. There are f- far fewer words in a libretto than in a play or in a musical book and set of lyrics. So your idea is to find that most you know just the right word, the, as few words as possible, in the the biggest expression you can, and then get out of the way. I compare it. I think it's most akin to writing a comic book. How few words can you put in those bubbles and let the penciler do the work? So I respect my craft. I think it's very, very difficult to do, but I do know that people might not know my name. They'll think of it as Peter Hilliard's The Filthy Habit or yeah. Blue Viola. Uh, I am impressed with this Royce Vavrick's career because he trained to be a librettist, and that is almost never done. He went to the same graduate program as me, then he went to an like an apprenticeship program that was recently formed, the uh, what is it called? Uh, American Lyric Theater, I think. So he really tried to specialize in writing libretti, and that's what he does. And too often, one hears.
2: But does he have a parenting podcast?
3: A, I'm sure he does not, because uh, and you know I write the parenting articles in New York, so yeah, I know he doesn't write those. <laughs> uh, he uh, You've cornered the market. <laughs> that's right. There's no room for any other parents. Uh, he writes libretti and too often you hear the poet laureate of a state gets chosen to write a major opera or somebody who's a playwright gets brought over and that's a little unfortunately that's true with composers as well somebody has a big symphonic career so they say come on over and write your first opera but write it on some grand level for some a a-tier company yeah and i think that's bel so, canto for
2: lyric it, opera of chicago right
3: you know, the first thing yeah. you've ever written yeah. write it on the b- biggest stage that's possible yeah and i think that's awful you would never yeah. say uh you never hire the best plumber you know to do your electrical work. You would never yeah. say, I need open heart surgery. Man, that guy's an awesome dentist. <laughs> so I, I liked that Royce Baverick in studied to write operas, writes operas, that's what he does. He's a specialist the way DePonte or Boito or uh Ileca and Giacosa, all those guys also wrote plays, oh, but they you were. You named two more than I did. Milak <laughs> and But they but they they were specialists in their field and so is he, and that's wonderful. As far as the fact that he o- is only able to do that, that's wonderful, and I'm very jealous. He's also a single guy who lives in an apartment in he's probably gay too. Bushwick. <laughs> uh, <thought> <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I don't know how—one thing I bemoan about the industry is that the economics are not such that you can— I don't know that we could have our two cars and our condo and our, our daughter's preschool tuition on. We certainly can't do it on my libretto money. <laughs> I mean, he's got a, he's got a bigger <laughs> career than me, but but yeah. I— it makes me sad that you can't really have a full-on grown-up life from your money as a, certainly not as a librettist and mostly not as a composer as, as yeah. well. That bums me out. Yeah. Do you yeah. know?
2: I'm sorry. Before, do you know of uh, any of his works? Have you ever seen? I've never seen, and I've only heard excerpts on these clips that are available to us. I've also so. only heard excerpts,
3: so I can't really okay. speak. I can't say like he stinks or he yeah. rules. Like <laughs> yeah. you know, I've heard heard excerpts of his work, and clearly he is competent. Uh, but I, I I shan't overpraise nor nor damn him. Well, I, yeah, I, I mean I'm not you're in you're not, they're they're not being
0: him. a hater, obviously, mm-hmm. and I don't think we're we're hating on him. It's mm-hmm. it's about the industry. It's about the business. Um, the article on him is is on our website, Opera Box Score dot squarespace.com um i you know i wonder i mean he has he has fingers in many pies he watches watches a lot of tv he says uh i mean do we know sort of how pop culture has worked into his art
2: and there's also the issue that comes up in those articles about how a lot of these operas now are adaptations of Mm -hmm.
0: well he's doing breaking the
3: waves right which is like a lars von trier film and and he's a fan of dark weird film yeah uh and he did dog days which is like this post apocalyptic nightmarish piece so there's something very sort of genre fiction about his yeah. work so i i think that his love of avant garde so, so film and so not, forth he's not
2: doing comedy it, basically, basically. <laughs> D- the opposite of
3: comedy as so so far from comedy as not comedy as you could possibly get i it really he you know he's a big part of this prototype fest and, and many works that he was involved with are in prototype uh huh uh, and those pieces, if it weren't for Beth Morrison Projects, and she is the producer of uh, the Prototype Festival, I don't know what anyone would write about in opera. I mean, it seems like three quarters of the stories are about Prototype and about Beth's projects, and she really filled a void when City Opera went, yeah, right down. Yeah, uh, she with with new work, uh, but it's f- it's fringe work, it's avant garde work, it's work that is not to all tastes. It's outstanding work. Uh, I don't know how repeatable it is, and so these jobs. And so l- I'm glad you brought like,
2: that up because we we talked We began talking about this when we were talking about Prototype Festival, and like I feel like some of these works are so out there that they. How could you possibly recreate them? You know, how mm-hmm. could you possibly? Where are you going to find the audience for these things? And. Chicago just put on Sameda's song, which Mm -hmm. um, is a little bit more in the classical vein, you know, but some of these things you read about, like where it's like a punk rock opera or like, Mm -hmm. you know, where they have like a really specific venue where they need a bunch of treadmills on the stage or I don't know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Like, how are you going to reproduce that? You know?
3: Yeah. There's very few places like uh, dog days has been done in it. LA and you can do it in some of the festivals in the summer where people are, you know, it's part of a a larger
2: season. Like Tanglewood or something like that. Sure, sure.
3: And in major cities where there are people who are going to see avant-garde work and maybe they're not the normal opera audience, maybe they see weird plays and they're going to come check it out. I don't know if it's getting...
2: Do you think that's a way to outreach, you know, doing bizarro stuff like that that is more about, you know, a very specific venue or, you know, a very unusual environment or something like that. Because, like, we're, I, we talked to Operateen last week, mm-hmm. and uh, he says his advice to opera administrators is cast a wide net, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, figure out what's interesting in culture right now and what people are attracted to and show these neophyte audiences that we actually have that in opera. We've always had that in opera. And does that apply to this fringe stuff?
3: There is no way that fringe stuff isn't outreach because I'm sure that, Mm. because I gather these pieces are well attended and well liked because they are drawing in people who like that stuff. I don't know what happens then when the next show comes along at a given company. Like do those punk rockers or do those downtown people, those hipsters who came for a post-apocalyptic piece, do they come for the next show or do they wait for the next po- po- post-apocalyptic piece? Yeah. This data is probably out there, but well, I don't Why know. are they
0: always
2: post-apocalyptic, too? I mean, they really Because are. costumes aren't expensive. <laughs> when you, do okay, post- it's like <laughs> you try to do uh, Rococo, period. Like yeah, really <laughs> expensive costumes. Everybody yeah. just wear a garbage bag yeah. and you'll be just <laughs> yeah. fine. You
0: know? Well, yeah. if we we're trying to extrapolate the conversation here and look a little, look a little bit down the road, what mm-hmm. what do we need to change, then, about the life of the librettist and the role of the librettist in the process?
2: How can how we, we make we gonna, your life better? How we can improve amazing. this?
0: Well, I think interestingly,
3: I think it ties into all three of our lives as as we sit here. I'm trying when as I read these articles about uh, Royce Fabric, I was trying to read between the lines about the state of the industry. And when I see a guy who, I mean, he's clearly talented. He seems like a cool dude, uh, and he's very successful, and that's awesome. And it's great that there's at least one dude who can only write libretti. That's encouraging. The fact that somebody who studied libretti and specializes in it is being hired, that's also encouraging. I do worry, it seems like he's, and keep in mind my point of view, like I'm a guy who wants all his jobs. Uh, When I see that he's got a million projects coming up, but there's not that many projects in this world, I don't know if it's a healthy industry where it's winner takes all. It's like an electoral college. Like he writes one piece that's very successful, so everybody asks him to do all the pieces. That's scary that there aren't more voices in the mix. Now, of course, I say that because if it were me, maybe I'd say no. Right. Uh, So... But the fact is the economics of things are such that to do all this fringe opera, it takes a person who is willing to completely devote their life to it. Whether they are a, you know, a director, whether they are a, a composer, whether they are a librettist, um, they're not going to get paid. They're going to have to struggle to get people in the door. Right. Uh, and so it takes a person who's willing to completely give themselves over to their vocation or to their calling to make these things happen, and if they want some kind of other work-life balance, like if they want to buy a house or be a parent, it becomes much more difficult to have as quick a career, and I think that stinks, and it really does look like the future of opera is fringe companies and the very largest, you know, they'll always be a Lyric Opera Chicago, there will always be a Met, and then there'll be a bunch of fringe companies, and we're seeing these fringe companies, including companies that you fellows are involved with here in Chicago, and it's artistically, I think it's wonderful because there are more voices in the mix or more shows being performed, but they are for such small audiences and they are on such a shoestring that you can't get paid to do it. So how long can you do it? Are we just going to see millions of weird operas by 25 to (laughs) 35-year-olds, and then they go do something else? That is my my fear.
2: This is a real thing, because I do love all the you know the grassroots opera but then you see these people like turn 35 Mm -hmm. and like their husband you know wants to like get pregnant you know and we want to start like you know paying their you know preschool tuition you Mm -hmm. know and like you can't be spending all your time on these projects and not be bringing in money for the household you know Mm -hmm. and the whole company Goes away.
0: Yeah, I'm living it, man. Let me tell you. It's just, like, that's <laughs> why we're on the radio. I know. This, let's let's just like. Piss, but I mean, the economy it, was you know? different, like
2: in the '80s, let's say, and in the '90s, mm-hmm. when like opera was doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Were there as many of these little fringe companies, and like who was doing chamber? I opera? was so, like, so cocky, like, even in the
3: early mm-hmm. 2000s, like coming out of grad school. Yeah. I'm like you suckers going into musical theater yeah i said opera is so much more stable there's all these companies they're all starting to dedicate themselves to new work and they're yeah. flush with cash <laughs> and yeah. the party will never end and then 2008 came along and three out of every four opera companies went out of business in, inside of five years uh and now we're, we're doing like- lines
2: of cocaine off of their gowns <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. that's right <laughs>
3: I need that that wall is too heavy. Give me another wall. Fly, <laughs> yeah. fly that wall to oh, London that, from Israel.
2: That one set piece uh, Gr- Grundebar or something like that. Like there was a giant wall on the stage. I forget it was like some children's opera, Grindefor or um, I don't remember. It was just it was just like symptomatic of the type of decadence mm-hmm. that was like in the 90s where they just built this ridiculous thing that can couldn't be used for anything else and mm-hmm. it was like stupid and ugly but it's like yes, we have the money to put that thing on the stage. No, no. so, so I mean, opera
3: has done what everything has done in sort of the internet age like there's yeah. the you have more access to audiences to tiny fra- fragmented audiences you can reach out to them they'll come they'll love your work you can do exciting work but the economics of it is really mess. George you're a dad and you prom- you you produce and direct Fringe Opera, so you're in the
0: same the same boat, the same uh, crazy line. Yeah, don't get me started. I mean, it's just it's all about scheduling, and, and frankly, it, it's for me. I mean, my kids are six and three, so I, I I try and involve them in the process as much as I can. Like when I'm move put, those sets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Can't you hammer any faster? You've got these little fingers. Come on. Uh, I you know when I'm like prepping for a show and I'm listening to the music I I cannot listen to it in isolation with like a nice glass of port and on mm. my beautiful sound system like. and your smoking jacket <laughs> exactly no I gotta I put on the music got, and I not even like time to put the ask build on. You know? with some duplo blocks and <laughs> and I try and you know make some art so <laughs> uh we're gonna take a quick break right here uh talking to Oliver Camacho my co-host along with our guest co-host Matt Berzzi next segment coming up it's about musical theater in Opera. And, you know, what that relationship is, strange bedfellows to say the least. Mm. Keep it here. Singlets. WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago.
1: You're listening to Opera Box Score. On Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques.
0: WNUR 89.3 FM is what you're listening to along with Opera Box Score. It's America's talk radio show about opera. We're streaming live as well WNUR.org/slash pop-up. On Twitter, Opera Box Score here in the studio, 847-866-WNUR eight four seven eight six six nine six eight seven if you don't have letters on your keypad anymore. Uh Javonda Jock not in the studio tonight. Hmm. Uh Matt Brazi, you aren't quite as attractive as she is, hmm. but I am glad you're here.
3: <laughs> I'm doing my best.
0: Uh the reason we brought you on the show, well, for a lot of reasons actually, but this segment, which I'm going to set up, uh, is about the crossover between opera and musical theater. Matt uh, Beresi, a librettist, uh, has done opera, has done song cycles, has done musical theater, and the trend right now in opera, for the big opera houses, is to try and cross pollinate, or what's mm. the word in the pop music industry that's crossover. Mm -hmm. Uh, between these two art forms. Let's set up the conversation first of all and just briefly try and unpack this statement of like, what is the difference between opera and musical theater? Mm. All right. So in
3: opera, generally, they don't stop singing. So the scenes are also sung, generally. And in musicals, usually you sing the songs and then you speak the scenes, generally. There are exceptions. Like Zingspiel. Like, right, like Zingespiel, yeah. and, and like some sung through operas like yeah. Phantom Millennium Miz or, or Sweetie mm-hmm. Todd. Uh, there is one of the big differences is the scale of the voice and the laryngeal placement, right? Like, the mm. um, you've got it's SAT words there. You, you sing like this <laughs> in an opera, and you sing like this <laughs> in <into> a musical, right? <laughs> the <But> microphones. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, and because of because of the placement, yeah. It, yeah, opera singing was designed to sing over the orchestra before microphones were invented. Yeah, and then the, the style of singing changed when there were microphones.
2: Yeah, um, but then there's that in between music, or like classical musical theater, where they actually were singing full out. They were
3: singing like legit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Sondheim's answer to this is that uh, operas are sung in opera houses for opera audiences and musical. Theater pieces are done in musical theater houses for musical theater audiences. Mm-hmm. So it's about expectations of how it's going to be sung, of the pacing, uh, of the scale of things. Oh, there's also, this is a generality as well, but uh, opera arias frequently drill down into a concept for several minutes, and a lot of musical theater numbers continue the dramatic action across the arc of the song. So the action doesn't stop quite quite, quite as dead in its tracks, for, you know, for better or for ill. Uh, really, it's, a, it's about... Uh, It's about taste, but there's a set of expectations about the musical gravity of things and how things are going to work in an opera house that are different.
0: Well, let's go a little Mm -hmm. further with this idea of expectation then which Mm -hmm. is uh, your typical lyric opera of Chicago audience member, Mm -hmm. say uh, maybe they're a subscriber or maybe they just see a lot of the shows there. They're used to seeing some standard rep. They're used to seeing some modern Mm -hmm. 20th century works and then in April they have the opportunity to see Rodgers and Hammerstein, The King and I. Mm -hmm. So are their expectations being met? Are they being upended, and how are they going to feel about Before that? Before
2: you answer, Matt, mm. I'll just say that this is part of their initiative. They started in two thousand and thirteen to present five, uh, five um, Oscar and Hammer, Oscar and Hammerstein, <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. So <laughs> they they started with Sound of Music in two thousand and um, uh, they started with Oklahoma in two thousand and thirteen. Uh, They did Sound of Music in 2014, Carousel last year, King and I this year, and next year, South Mm -hmm. Pacific. I don't know if they're going to continue with this and choose a different composer, you know, for 2018. Uh, But it's my understanding that these have been categorically successful, Mm -hmm. um, sold out or near sold out. And I've gone. I took my mom to see uh, Carousel, and she loved it. Well, and
3: they're incredible. Yeah. They are as high quality as something can be from from top to bottom and side to side. Just amazing productions. Broadway should be ashamed that an opera company could come along and make a better show than a Broadway show without any practice and
0: what's so fantastic about these productions because i've never actually seen one and i i don't think i ever will but that's mostly because i don't
2: like these composers oh <laughs> and, and that rep but well, they um, have an orchestra a really good orchestra in the pit that i can yeah. certainly
3: understand they have uh, a big orchestra not five yeah. guys and five robot speakers like
2: you yeah, yeah, on keyboards <laughs> right. like that mm-hmm. oh my god when you ever see like these like avenue q for example um, you go see this show and like it's a really fun show and then they like raise the curtain on the band. It's like two guys, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's like, Really? <laughs> and it's like that's terrible for music theater that they can't pay people to like play a violin, you know. Yeah, and it
3: gets smaller every year too.
2: Yeah. But um, The
3: casting is outstanding. Yes. Um, I mean, there are some celebrities, but it's not like David Hasselhoff doing Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. right? It's really tasteful. <laughs> the larger voice roles are usually sung by opera people. Things that are poppier are sung by poppier or more musical theater people. But everybody's in the right seat on the bus. Yeah. The dancers are dancerly. And then it's all lush and gorgeous and And expensive. And the stage is
2: gigantic and the costumes Mm -hmm. are, you know, expensive. And like King and I is going to be amazing in that space, you know, because the opera house is designed to put on a big spectacle like that. And actually, here's my my before you give your two cents about Mm -hmm. it. I feel like you're asking, are the audiences accepting this? Are they welcoming this? I think they this is what they've wanted all along. Hmm. Like, there are these, this aging audience that is tired of hearing Luciano Berrio's whatever, Urena Scolta, <laughs> you know, they, they are subscribers. Or live of, a little. Yeah. <laughs> and so they feel like the opera house is finally giving them what they really wanted all along. It's like, just to be in that space, because they're comfortable in that space, mm. and to get some tunes and to see some dancing, you know?
3: Well, and I would say... Hmm that all of our lives up until 2008 when everything got weird and there's no rules for anything anymore there was always a slot in most opera companies seasons that the last piece of the year was something frothy and effervescent and fun now maybe it's an Santorum, operetta so. like uh, maybe I guess at new years you get your 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 deflator mouse and your your merry widow right? right but you put your Candide or operetta you put a gilbert and sullivan sure. you put pirates of penzance or you put gypsy love or something yeah. at the end of the season and operetta we shouldn't bemoan the death of opera or the death of musical theater they don't seem to be going anywhere but operetta oh boy like go get the orchids out cuz the, the the funeral is, is it is totally done done done, done, yeah. done. You're, there's Gilbert and Sullivan society still and there's a few crossover pieces that are going to that are, are going to exist but american opera you know the victor herberts and the rombergs and the frimmels on top are of that done.
2: we don't have people who know how to perform that repertoire right and you know the Mary widow which is in the standard canon mm-hmm. suffers from not being able to find you know singing actors mm-hmm. who know comic timing you know mm-hmm. that's so funny
0: to me because when you look at TV like there are plenty of writers in TV land which are essentially creating uh Byzantine operetta style plots some of them <laughs> even like um crazy ex-girlfriend which is on um, wGn mm-hmm. like has singing in it so I'm not sure why those types are not able to, transfer this to a live venue like an opera house. My question is is wh- where is the line going to shift? Like if you take lyric for example, are they always going to be doing the sort of Rodgers and Hammerstein uh oeuvre or uh, I mean are they what's that different composer as Oliver said at the beginning of the segment? I'm mean,
3: Learn and low, right? That's about the same.
0: Yeah, like that's sort of the same. I mean, I guess Bernstein, you could you could do sure. Candide and West Side Story. Um, Some Frank Lesser, they do. Right? They, can do, they West do West, West Side Story fellow. as opera
2: abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: was just looking that up. West Side Story is being done in like nine different houses in Germany this year. Really? Yeah, yeah. West Side Man, Story. <laughs> Side story. Uh, yeah, boy.
2: I think we actually solved it. Like we, they should do the Shards Fursten live on Fox. <laughs> with, with <laughs> juliana hoff you know in, in, right, instead yeah, of yeah. greece <laughs> yeah. okay. various alums of high school
3: musical yeah
0: <laughs> so then maybe i'm wrong maybe lyric opera audiences are not up in arms about this programming
3: i think they probably like it and i think yeah. you've got you've got this period in the 40s and
0: 50s you can draw from right
3: and you know once you've done all of roger and hammerstein Lerner and Lowe, and maybe a couple of frank lessers just go back around and start at the beginning
0: Nobody will remember, yeah. you know. Could you ever get into a musical theater angle of like Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber, who no. have done a number of shows together? They've I mean, done a number on things all right. It's you know, <laughs> again, looking at some of the stats coming out of Germany this season, like opera houses are doing Jesus Christ Superstar and they're doing Evita. I, I don't are know how. Really? I don't know how big of a leap that is. I first of all, I can't imagine those. If well, they Vida, are being done in German, sung, I can't imagine right? them being translated.
2: Or is it only belted? Say, say that again. A vita can actually be sung, right? Isn't it a really high well? High?
3: I'm going into opinion land, but I think yeah. it's better right. belted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's you know it's the next Weber piece after Jesus Christ Superstar, mm-hmm. and so it's got a lot of that screamy 70s rock in a good way. Mm-hmm. Before he got all highfalutin and thought he could pull off a of Phantom of the Opera, so uh, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that because that those pieces are best rocked, like they are best done and i think people people who are used to listening to two guys in
2: the orchestra pit with a guitar and a keyboard yes exactly exactly yeah
3: ding 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 ding
2: what about
0: the the personnel in in these operas? I mean, what's it like to see big opera singers do these roles? We've talked about that having an orchestra, a nice big orchestra play those scores. is something well, that you not really the never big get.
2: opera singers. I mean, they they have like Nathan Gunn, who's like I think soft pedaling the rest of his career right now, and they have like Denise Gray. I don't know,
0: man. These are, these are pretty big names, Oliver. That it's you're a throwing big, around. It's so. a big
2: name, but I mean, he's not a big singer. I mean, he's never had like a booming baritone voice. He, he's always kind of been in the good like American music theater slash art song, you know, Mm -hmm. zone, you know, Mm -hmm. and Billy Budd because he looks great with the shirt off.
0: Right. Opera nipples, hashtag. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't (laughs) then, you know, opera singers
3: Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's opera singers. I mean, there's people who can play that game. You might have like an Audra McDonald who can sound like an opera singer, Mm -hmm. but is a, is a completely uh, facile actress. Yeah. But like Denise Graves came out in, was she, she was in Carousel. And, I'm not saying she stopped the show, but she sure as hell slowed it down. Yeah, like, it, 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 <laughs> uh,
2: in a good way, in a bad, way. Was, I'm you know, a bad this, way. This is in yeah. a bad way, right? I mean, yeah. I was excited yeah. because, of la- because of the language. Is that what you're saying? Because of her text, yeah, her diction, yeah, yeah,
3: her diction. It was weird. It didn't. It didn't fit. I mean, I it loved was very Denise operatic, Graves, yeah.
2: but it was she didn't quite fit in yeah. the production. Yeah, but she brought some opera to Lyric. And you were out. at the Lyric and yeah.
3: that role worked for yeah. her. So it's not like she yeah. destroyed the show, but I'm sure everybody went Oh, yeah. we're we're yeah. pulled out That's
2: now. Yeah. Yeah. In this
0: yeah, well, I'd love to. I'd love to see how this is going to turn out uh, down the line for Lyric. I, I'm trying to think now of other houses of that caliber, of that scale, are, are doing mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean, the Metropolitan Opera, in New York, is not. Uh, no, City
3: Opera did uh, like Sweeney Todd. Todd. Yeah. Lyric did Sweeney yeah. Todd in the standard season. Oh, they season. did. Yeah. And that, like, was that yeah, Brent like, Was he in there? Yeah, yeah, he was.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, San Francisco. I don't think. Uh th- I know they did Sweeney Todd recently. Um, but Houston Grand Opera, I don't think they've done a, a musical, have they? They do I feel like they do crossovery
3: things in their studio. Mm-hmm. But not on the
2: uh-huh. See, I'm sort of a purist and like I actually don't listen to this type of music, so that's why I really don't know. But um a place like Seagull Colony, uh which mm, is a uh-huh. training training mm-hmm. ground for young twenty-ish singers, they actually require their uh, you know, summer interns or apprentices to do music theater as well mm-hmm. as opera. And maybe that's a good thing for an American singer to be able to be versatile. And- well, you know
3: what's funny about it is that musical theater has evolved
2: so much
3: or devolved or, but it changed. It has moved on right. since the sound of the 50s that they're doing in these opera houses. So while the opera houses are saying, look at how fresh we're being, we're doing a show from 1943, <laughs> musical theater on Broadway is largely rock and pop singing yeah. now. It has completely gone yeah. into contemporary stylings so uh these pieces almost fall in a in a hole between where most broadway the broadway people are becoming pingier more forward placed beltier people the opera singers are opera singers i think your carousels are almost gonna they're gonna fall into a hole
2: Hmm. That's your town like like i just said with operetta there's not people who can sing light enough to get through all of that funny text and are good enough actors, you know, mm-hmm. to pull it off. You know, it's kind of cheesy, and you have to commit to the cheese. You know,
0: commit to commit, the cheese. Commit to the cheese. <laughs> has to gonna, commit to the that's, cheese. It's gonna be my tattoo. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, if you see if you see the show at um, Lyric, if you see the King, and I'm line, going. My mom gonna, wants to go. Your like, mom wants to go back.
2: She loved. Car- <laughs> she loved Carousel. Okay. She probably cried like three times. And she normally doesn't feel anything. So (laughs) she really wants to go to King. Plus, it's Asian and you know, got to support the Asian. Well, it's sort of pseudo. (laughs) It's one of the few times that Lyricop will be hiring Asian. Specifically, hiring Asian people. (laughs) It's
1: Asian
0: now. It used to be Russian guys painted yellow. Oh, my gosh. All right, we're going to wrap up this show in uh, one second. Keep it right here, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Oliver Camacho in the studio tonight. Matt Berezi joining us as well. Uh, We're going to be coming back with Good Call, Bad Call to wrap this thing up, and we'll see you on the other side.
1: Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score.
0: Good call, bad calls when we talk about something that has happened in the past week or that's something that's coming up, whether it's a nice positive thing, a good call, or if it's downright lousy, a bad call. And I'm going to go last, so who's going to go first?
2: I'll start. Um, good call, uh, it's kind of a guess, but I am I think it's a good one. Uh, Alexander Chee, uh, the author of the book uh, Edinburgh, how you say that word, Edinburgh, 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 you know, I don't speak English. Uh, his newest novel uh, comes out tomorrow. Uh, it's called The Queen of the Night and is a fictional story of a Belle Epoque opera singer. And uh, Edinburgh was really well received. And uh, I suspect that this author is gay. So I'm always things that are pro-gay and pro-opera. And so this book is right up my alley and I'm probably be reading it and you can join the OC Book Club. We could talk about it over tea, or over chai, over chai and port. Um, <laughs> my bad call, and I invite both of you, since you're both stage directors, to join me on this bad call. I saw Nabucco. I should probably, oh, I didn't say, I didn't see Nabucco. I saw an opera, a Verdi opera at a local opera house with a lot of chorus in it. And um, the it was just a lot of traffic control. I felt really bad. Mm for the director because it was just so many people. And I wonder if there's a different solution. And this uh, stage director is making his debut with the lyric. And if you look at his other work, he seems to be very creative and you know he's a smart guy, but he sem- seemed to have been tied up with this particular assignment. Maybe it was not the right assignment for him. And, is, and I also learned from people who are in the chorus that they had very little time to stage this thing. Mm. So what do you do when you have an opera like this, that's basically an oratorio? What, what is the solution?
0: Matt know? Barrezi, over to you for a good call, bad call. We're going to leave Oliver's question hanging in the air. <laughs> all right.
3: <laughs> all right, good call. Uh, Huffington Post, that endless font of half-thought-out uh, opinion pieces about the state of opera, has a good one this week. Uh, Opera's Bizarro World is the name of the article, if you want to look it up, on Huffington Post by Miriam Gordon Stewart, where she talks about the state of things, and she praises all the wonderful things that are being, being done by fringe opera companies, uh, specifically Beth Morrison Project, specifically Urban Arias in D.C., uh, and it's a great article about all the good things that are coming from these scrappy companies and the people who are giving their lives over to make opera continue.
0: My good call is I'm really excited to see the double bill coming up at Chicago Opera Theater. It's La Voix Humaine uh, by Poulenc and Gianni Schicchi by Puccini, an opera that I've done a couple times before. And uh, very excited to see what Andreas Medesec is going to do. Over there at COT. That's it for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V O X E R S H O R T S.com. Here at WNUR, Leo runs the soundboard, and our programming director is Bill Sholnay. The general manager for WNUR is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Hey, let us know what you think of the show. Opera Score at gmail.com, at Opera Box on Twitter, Opera Box Score on the Book of Face. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on itunes soundcloud and stitcher our next episode will be yours for the taking on monday february 8th. and hey don't just listen to it leave comments reviews and stars i'm george Cedarquist for oliver camacho and matt Parisi asking me to keep the conversation about opera going even if you can't pronounce those foreign words be brave street beat is up next you're listening to wnur fm evanston chicago chicago's sound experiment Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result 60 minutes of play by play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions, plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR.